We've been on a series where we've been talking uh, through the book of 2 Corinthians. We've been talking about how uh, some di- pretty difficult themes, and uh, they're hard to hear sometimes, and, and uh, in many senses, they're hard to take. And today, we're going to uh, address, uh, continue to address this uh, difficult things, and uh, we're going to look in and dive into this theme of repentance. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read just a short portion here uh, this morning of the passage that we're going to be diving into for time's sake. And I would encourage you to, over the next week, spend some time diving into this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 5 and read down through to the end of verse 10. Here now from God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting outward and fear within. For God, who confronts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort for which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that uh, that letter uh, that grieved you, um, sorry, a letter that grieved you through only, for, although only for a while, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that, your suffer, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, um, we come to you this morning recognizing that we need you. We need your word um, to give us life, freedom, truth. We need your word to give us an examination of who we are in light of who you are. Uh, Lord, we, we need to know what Jesus Christ has done for us, not just in a simple way, but in a profound way, that we would appreciate um, the wonderful gift of salvation that he extends to us. And so have your way, we pray this morning, as we dive into your word Speak truth, we ask, and transform us through the power and the work of your Spirit. May your word cut through our heart and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. We pray this all in the precious name of Christ. Amen. I came across uh, an interesting article. It was called The Grossest Job in the World. (laughs) It was a collection that was put together and... uh, uh, it was uh, found in, uh, published in Men's Health, January 14, 2013. Believe it or not, there are people who devote their entire lives to studying stinky, smelly things. Take Dr. George Peretti, for example. Peretti has been studying odor for just over 40 years, primarily at the Monell Chemical Sen- uh, Census Center in Philadelphia, which, he's joined, which he joined in 1971. 
Once he spilled a flask filled with concentrated armpit extract. <laughs> Love this. I, I, when I read this, I was just howling. And you may be going, oh, mercy, what does this have to do with anything? It does. Stick with me right here. All right. Which was shattered on the floor of his lab and covered Peretti's sneakers and a portion of his pants. Oh, he cleaned up the mess as fast as he could, the shoes. Uh, he put in a plastic bag thinking that the odor, it was contained. No problems. But it's like when you work in a restaurant, when you're cooking food or you eat garlic, you don't typically smell what everyone else smells. That's what he said. And so Peretti caught the train, and uh, as he did, he received a few dirty looks from his fellow commuters, and uh, he was picked up at the station by his wife. As soon as he got in the car, she looked at him and said, my, okay, no, she didn't say my lands. That's what I'd say. She said, you smell terrible. She was just overwhelmed with the odor. Uh, and the reality was Preddy couldn't smell anything. He didn't think he did smell. Uh, Preddy's uh, calculated misstep was uh, that everyone else uh, noticed and he didn't. He figured that he had spilled somewhere in the neighborhood of 600,000 people's um, armpit extract on his pants and shoes. He learned a hard lesson that day. The power of body odor can't be underestimated. And those sneakers, he had to throw them out, he says. There is no way he could possibly neutralize the smell. You know, in many ways, we're the same. You may wonder how. Well, the reality is we get used to the life that we are living in. We get used to our sin. We get used to the things that are so destructive that we don't realize the effect that it's having on us. We are in many ways like Peretti. And we don't realize the effect, the harm that is causing those around us. That is much about what 2 Corinthians is all about. Paul begins his passage by drawing the attention of those in the church of Corinth about the reality that, that he loves them. He's spoken the truth to them. He reminds them of what he said in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, that he had spoken freely to them. He had shared the truth. He loved them enough that he would share the truth with them. More than that, that his heart was opened wide. He shared about his downfalls. He shared about his brokenness, how he, how he wasn't able to walk in the fullness that they expected. But in weakness, God was able to work in and through him. He shared his vulnerability with the church of Corinth. And now again, he reminds them of that reality. He says to them that, you know, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Paul is reminding them that even though he's written a difficult letter to them, even though they were in a, a, a disarray, even though that they were engaged in sinful behavior and he confronted them with this difficult letter, he says, look, we love you. That's why we've done it. That's why we've done it. He reminds them that when he was in Troas, as we talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, God opened the doors for him to uh, expound upon and to do the ministry that God had called him to. While he was there, he was so overwhelmed with, with what was happening with the church of Corinth. He, he didn't take the advantage of what God had given to him. No, instead, 
Instead, he left the ministry, left the open door that God had opened and headed up to Macedonia. And there he preached the gospel. Here he gives us a little bit more understanding. He says, our bodies found no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. There was such great persecution towards Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ as he was up in Macedonia. You can read about it in the book of Acts where riots were ensued and, and, and Paul was thrown in jail. Persecution to stop proclaiming the gospel. Paul reminds them of these things. And then he directs his attention towards them and says, you know, but God is a God who comforts. He's quite practical. God is a God who comforts. He reminds them of chapter one where it is the God of all comfort who comforts us in the midst of our affliction. He reminds them of that. You know, friends, we, we endure much hardships in our lives, and sometimes we lose sight of God. I like what the inspirational writer Raymond McHenry notes when we are in times of uncertainty, times where we're wondering if God's involved. Remember the simple facts that the ocean of the world contains more than 340 quintillion gallon, gallons of water, yet God holds them in the hollow of his hand, says Isaiah 40, verse 12. The earth weighs six a sextillion metric tons, yet God says it is but dust on a scale. Isaiah 40, verse 15. The known universe stretches 30 billion light years, yet God measures it by the width of his hand. Scientists claim that there are at least 100 billion galaxies. Each galaxy is made up of about 100 billion stars to such mind-boggling math, Isaiah reminds us, God calls each star by name. Hmm. Friends, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our trials, God is able to comfort us. He's the one who's able to come alongside us. He's the one who's able to uphold us. Listen, friends, there's nothing too difficult for God. God is able to uh, come alongside us and comfort us. And so God is, Paul reminds us that God comforted him who was downcast in the midst of his circumstances. How? By very practically sending Titus to him. It was Titus who came to Paul and Paul was looking for Titus because Titus was the one who delivered the difficult letter, the difficult message to the church of Corinth. He was concerned how the church would respond and Titus has comes back and finds Paul up in Macedonia and he brings good news to him. God uses Titus, and not just Titus, but the church of Corinth to encourage Paul in the midst of his circumstances and to comfort him, and Paul alludes to all of that. He alludes to the fact that it was that message that Titus brought, that, that the people uh, of, of Corinth were, were repentant, not only repentant, that they were zealous for Paul, that they embraced Paul, that Paul's difficult letter didn't bring such damage to the church of Corinth that the relationship was severed. No, instead, the comfort was, was that, that the church of Corinth was responding to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, and so as we kind of continue on in this passage of Scripture, we see Paul kind of alludes to this, this important message. He goes on to say in verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Hmm. Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. <laughs> Have you ever felt that way? Where you're correcting maybe your children, and instantly you go, oh, I wish I didn't do that. 
Oh, I wish I, wish I, I, wish I said it differently. Oh, oh, I wish I did. You know what? Maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe I shouldn't have said anything at all. That instant regret. Maybe, maybe you're correcting a neighbor, a good friend. You're readjusting them. You're, you're helping them see the truth. And instantly you say it, and you can't get those words back fast enough in your mouth. That was Paul. Paul wrote this difficult letter to the church of Corinth. You see, we talked about this before. The letter was that, that this gentleman was involved in sexual misconduct. And he was, he was uh, you know, proud about it. And the church community, the body of Christ, was not correcting him. And so Paul sends this letter saying that this behavior is inappropriate. We don't know exactly what that was. We're not exactly sure if it was involved in the temples that uh, surrounded Corinth. Maybe one of the seven temples that, that they were involved in some sort of sexual misconduct. We don't know. Uh, we're not sure what it was that this gentleman was doing. But the church was allowing this behavior behavior to go on. They weren't correcting it. They weren't adjusting. So Paul sends this letter and he says, listen, this guy needs to be corrected. And then he challenges the church. He says, church, you you need to stand up for righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. You need to discipline him. It's a difficult letter. Those aren't fun conversations to have. And so Paul corrects. He, he sets the record straight. Not only the individual, but the church. And then he's worrying. Was I too strong? Was I too harsh? Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I should have just let God deal with it in another manner. So he says, I, I wrote that letter to you and I grieved the letter. I wish I hadn't said anything. I wish I hadn't done it. I wish I, I wish, I wish it was different. He regretted it. You and I, we've experienced those kinds of regrets, haven't we? If we've ever tried to correct, if we've ever tried to help, if we've ever tried to point someone, whether it's our children, neighbors, friends, the people we love, in the right direction, we often walk away with regret. Many times I've had preacher's regret where I go home and I rehearse in my mind the things I've said and wish I had packaged it a little different. Was I too harsh, too strong? Ah, maybe I wasn't strong enough. This is what Paul is dealing with. But this is the, the good news is that in the midst of this, Paul says that he did regret it, but he doesn't any longer. Why? Because he sees that the letter had grieved you. It had grieved them. It had caused them to take stock of their reality, even but for a while. In verse 9, he continues on and he says, It's as it, it is, as it is, I rejoice. He's not rejoicing that he wrote a difficult letter. He's not rejoicing that there was grief involved in receiving the letter. No. He, he explains that quite clearly here. That, that that's not the reason that he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing because his strong words were needed. His strong words, which were under the direction of the Holy Spirit, were needed and required. And because of that, it led to them grieving into repentance. Hmm. It led them to grieving into repentance. It was a hard word. It was a difficult thing to say. And yet, it led them to a place of repentance. 
Sometimes these kinds of conversations are, are most difficult, especially in the moment when, when the person who's receiving the message, the person who's receiving the message, they, they can go one way or the other. They, they, can, they can call you self-righteous, how dare you, why use words like that, or, or they can embrace, embrace the loving correction that is extended to them. Paul rejoices that the weight and the grief of the, of the message that he gave led to repentance. Repentance. Uh, friends, there's two kinds of grief, and Paul unpacks this in verse 10, and we would be wise to take a few moments to reflect on this. He goes on to say, for godly repentance, or grief, I'm sorry, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. I love that. A godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas a worldly grief produces death. Friends, the temptation as we live our lives is sometimes to feel a grief for the things that we've done. We are sorrowful, we're sad for our mistakes, for the things or the harm that we've caused to others. I see this sometimes in my kids, right? Uh, sometimes they're not so quick to, to apologize, to say sorry, to admit to their action. They're, no, they're, they're, they're sad that they got caught, truth be told. <laughs> and that's like you and me, isn't it? Sometimes we're just sad that we got caught. We are sad that, that people don't see us the way we want them to see us. We are sad that... Uh, character, our reputation has taken a hit. And we spend all our energy trying to fix and repair the mistakes. We hedge. We redefine what's happened. We, we explain away our mistakes because we don't want to own it. The temptation for you and for me is very much that way, isn't it? We, we know that we've done wrong, but we want to explain it away. We want to make excuses for the things we've done. We, we want to say it's not as bad as you think it is. It's, it's not that bad. We're sorry. But more often than not, we're sorry that we've been caught. Friends, Friends, that kind of grief leads to death. It does not lead to life. It, it does not lead to salvation. No, it leads to judgment. And when we stand before God and we give an account for the things that we've done, no excuse will measure up. For he is a righteous judge, pure all-knowing, all-understanding. Nothing will get by him. Friends, the worst thing we can do is deceive ourselves and think, and think that our sorrow for the things that we've done wrong can be easily explained away or swept under the carpet as if nothing had happened at all. Friends, that's the worst place we could live. And yet... Paul warns the church of Corinth, and so too he warns us. 
that we too must make sure that we don't have a worldly grief that ultimately leads, I'm sorry, that ultimately leads to death, judgment, payment. No, instead, there's a godly grief that uh, produces uh, a repentance that leads to salvation. What is this? Well, what Paul is describing here is uh, a consciousness, a, a recognition, a conviction of the Spirit that says, no, you are wrong here. Your motives are wrong, impure. This is for selfish gain. Begin to feel sorrow, grief for the things we've done. And as I said, the temptation is to explain it away, both to ourselves and to those around us. But when it's godly sorrow or godly grief, friends, when we, when we stand before God, we recognize that we're undone. As the prophet Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. I am broken. As Paul himself said, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this life of sin? Paul says, I'm the chief of all sinners, the greatest church planner the world has ever known. Friends, the temptation is to explain away, to make excuses, to hedge. It's not that bad. But true repentance, true sorrow that that is directed by God leads to repentance. Friends, repentance is is a, a word that we don't like to talk about much. As a matter of fact, many in, in the modern church has moved away from the message of repentance. We don't like to preach repentance. And yet, repentance is a, a foundational truth found throughout all the scriptures. Repentance is a message that, that declares that it's a change of direction. See, simply put, repentance means to change direction. The Bible says that each one of us, you and me, we are born in sin. That's what the Bible says. Each one of us has a, has a, a selfish, proud uh, reality that we're constantly dealing with. We're born in sin. And we have a sinful nature that wages war uh, against all godliness. We are broken. And the Bible says that you and I, we are enemies of God. Now let that sink in for just a moment. If you've not repented, you are an enemy of God. That's what the Bible says. And so what is repentance? Repentance means a change of direction. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Someone has to pay. You and I, we've sinned. We deserve death, judgment, separation for all eternity. That's what we deserve. It's coming to terms with that. That's the message that Paul is trying to bring forward here. And so what is repentance? Repentance is is when we go, yeah, I I am a sinner. I I can't change myself. Wow, I never thought I was an enemy of God, but wow, I guess I am. And it's not hedging. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm... I am what I am. It's, it's my parents' fault. I am what I am. It's, the, it's their fault. They made me angry. That's not repentance. No, repentance is, I agree with you, God. I'm so broken. I, I deserve judgment. 
I deserve hell. God, I can't fix myself. Would you save me? Repentance is a change of direction. That's all it is. Hmm. It's a message that is uh, underscored throughout the scriptures. The Old Testament, they preached repentance. All the minor prophets had a message of repentance. Jonah called out to Nineveh to repent for the judgment of God. God was coming unless they repented. And the whole community repented and put on sackcloth. Hosea Hosea said that if we turn to God, uh, God will come uh, to us as sure as the sun rises in the morning. As sure as the sun rises in the morning, God will come to us if we turn to God, if we repent and, and, and call on him. David, the king, the king who, who Nathan, the prophet, wagged his finger in his eye when he shared a parable about sheep and said, uh, you're that guy, you stole the sheep. It was David who repented and pleaded with God. Psalm 32 is an explanation of his repentance where, where David says, when I stayed silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Oh, friends. Friends, you may think that you can explain away your sin, your brokenness. You may think that you can explain away the things that, that, that uh, capture you, either in thought or in deed. But friends, you, are, you know and I know that when we put our heads down at night, when we, when we, when we live with ourselves, <laughs> we don't know what to do with the guilt and shame. The New Testament preaches repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance and had a baptism of repentance. Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the author and perfecter of our faith, he preached repentance in Matthew chapter 4. Peter preached repentance, Acts chapter 2, when he stood before all those in Jerusalem after they had killed the Christ. He stood before them on Pentecost and he said, You killed the Christ! His blood is on your hands. Believe, repent, and be baptized. And thousands were added to the number that day. Paul preached repentance as we read here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Both to the non-believer and to the believer. To, to, to seek the Lord. To make sure that sin isn't taking hold of their lives. He preached repentance in Acts chapter 26. Repent, turn to God. What is repentance? Well, according to 2 Timothy, it's, it's a change of direction. But more than that, it's a gift from God. It is God who extends the gift of repentance to you and to me. It's something that we receive. It's not something that we conjure up. It's not something that we manufacture from within. No. No, it is the Spirit of God who convicts us of our sin. It's creation that declares the glory of God and our selfishness. All these things declare that we need God. And He extends to us the gift of repentance. And so we receive the gift of repentance. Not only that, not only that, it's, it's not just a gift of God, ultimately. Ultimately, God says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Now think about that for just a moment. If God were vengeful, if God were unkind, 
we would never repent. We wouldn't. But God is kind. He's gracious and merciful to those. The perfect picture, the, the poster child of repentance is found with the prodigal son, isn't it? You know, it's the prodigal son who, who goes to his father and says, Dad, I, I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait. Give it to me. Dad agrees. Interestingly enough, sure, you can have it. Knowing full well that he's not likely to use it well. The son takes the uh, gift and he goes to a distant land and there he lives a life of luxury, embracing all forms of sin. Famine comes to the land and he runs out of money and he finds himself in trouble. And this young Jewish boy finds himself hired, hired to help out the citizens of that country with pigs which was unclean for him, but that's how desperate he was. But in verse 17 of chapter 15, Luke, he says, but when he came to himself, when he came to his right mind, when he came to his senses, this young man said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, yet I perish with hunger here? No, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he went. Notice the father doesn't chase after him. He lets him go. And notice also that it's the father who is waiting with anticipation that his son would return. He's watching for his son in the distance. He's looking to see when his son will come back. When his son has squandered all his wealth. He's waiting, watching. And then notice in verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The kindness of God. I love that. God is looking, he's watching, he's, he's waiting for you, for me, to turn to him, to come to the end of ourselves, to acknowledge our sin, to acknowledge our brokenness, to acknowledge that we need him and him alone. I love that the father runs to him. What a wonderful picture. If you've ever ran in a long dress, you'll know how difficult that is. This father in his robe, back in the day, in his robe, does the undignified thing. He pulls up his robe and probably bears a little knee as he runs to his son, not worried about what others think. This is the kindness of God. Notice what the son says to the father. He says, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Hmm. There's no hedging here. There's no, well, dad, you know, <laughs> I wish you taught me better. You know, I, I wish you warned me. I wish you didn't let me go. It's your fault, dad. None of that. If there wasn't a famine, I wouldn't be in this mess. No, none of that. It's the friends I hung out with. It's their fault. None of that. 
Father, I've sinned. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I love the Father's response. See, if he wasn't kind, he'd say, told you so. <laughs> you think you're coming? you got to earn it, man. Yeah, you'll earn your way back into our family. No, none of that. Get him a ring. Get him a robe. I'll have none of this. You're my son. Get him new shoes. Let's throw a party. For my son was lost. My son was dead, but now is alive. Friends, when we repent when we come to terms with our sin, when we come to terms with our brokenness, when we refuse to make excuses for our behavior, when we recognize our desperate need for a Savior, that we cannot save ourselves. And that's why God sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross. For your sin and for my sin, Friends, make no mistake, the temptation is great and strong. But when we repent, it produces deeds in keeping with it. That's what Acts says. There's fruit in keeping with repentance. Within us, the Spirit of God brings transformation to our lives, and we begin to hate sin. We despise it. Friends, when we repent, there's no regret. That's what we've read from the, uh, Paul as he says, there's no regret when you repent for salvation is yours. There's an e eagerness to make things right with others as we see with uh, the zeal and the passion of the church of Corinth towards uh, Paul. And friends, listen to this, that when one sinner, when one sinner repents, the angelic realm celebrates. All heaven throws a party when one sinner repents. Friends, do not get caught up in worldly grief. Sorrow for your sin. Resist the temptation to explain away your sin. Resist the temptation to explain your uh, actions. Resist it. Own your sin. Own it. And allow the mercy and the grace of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ the Lord to produce in you fruit in keeping with repentance. See, that's what Paul's talking about here. He goes on to say as he wraps up the letter, whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. In other words, the work that Jesus Christ began in you, it's coming to completion. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proven true. The evidence that you've repented, the evidence that the, the church is starting to function in a more healthy manner, it's here right before our eyes. He goes on to say as he wraps it up, and his affection. His affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of all of you, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice. Because I have completed, I have complete confidence in you. J.C. Ryle says true repentance is no light matter. It is a thorough change of heart about sin. 
A change showing itself in godly sorrow and humiliation. In heartfelt confession before the throne of grace. In a complete breaking off from sinful habits. An abiding hatred of all sin. Such repentance is the inseparable companion of saving faith in Christ. Let's stand together. And as you stand, I'm going to call on the worship team to come. Let me ask you something, friends. Do you know sorrow for your sin? Wish you never did it. But the temptation has been so great to explain it away, to blame others, to blame those around you, friends. Friends, that kind of sorrow leads to death and judgment. Make no mistake. Friends, if you are here and and you only know a worldly sorrow, God extends to you this day the gift of repentance. Receive it. It's his kindness that that, uh, leads to repentance. Turn to him. Acknowledge your sin. Don't hedge. Don't explain away. No, receive the gift of repentance this morning and allow God the Father to run to you. He will. Because Jesus Christ has paid in full for all your sin. That's why he'll run. If you've never called on his name, if you've never repented or turned to him, do not stay in your state any longer. Receive his free gift this day. Friends, maybe you've repented, but truth be told, you've been walking in the muck and mire of the carnal life. You're no longer effective. You're harsh to the, towards those around you. Maybe, maybe a, a, a sin has gotten a hold of you and you're not even sure you can be free. Friends, the resurrection. The resurrection sets you free. Turn to Christ again and receive his healing touch. Receive the fullness of his spirit that you would walk and abide in Christ where there is much fruit. Friends, turn to him. Turn to him again and walk out the life and faith that he has for each one of us. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, you know, you know each one of us this day and where we stand. We long, long to walk with you. And so we hear you calling bidding that we would turn to you. Thank you for your kindness, your gentleness, your love. Thank you for your posture to run to us. Thank you for the gift of repentance. Help us, we pray. Help us not to make excuses this day. Instead, Lord, help us to receive in so many ways, like that rich, I mean that prodigal son, the ring that says we are your sons and daughters. Help us to receive the righteousness of Christ, his robe, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness and sandals, that we would enter into the celebration with the angelic realm who rejoice when one soul repents. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name.